Hi everyone, welcome to the Right Angle Podcast. This is the podcast that focuses on the process of design, where each episode I will highlight one exceptional creative individual with unique perspectives and experiences within the world of spatial design through actual conversations about their design principles, philosophy, and process. I want to discover what makes each designer, artillier, and artist unique. I'm your host, Al Liu, an interior designer in New York City. In the world that celebrates influencers, The Right Angle will be a podcast that celebrates real designers who makes the industry what it is, and for listeners to get a glimpse into the true creative mind. In this episode, I am joined by Yorgo Licoria. Yorgo is the creative director at Rinlight, an integrated design studio with offices in London and New York, and client collaborations across North America, Europe, and Asia. Part laboratory, part workshop, part studio, Rinlight combines inspired design thinking with business acumen to create products that enhance how people live, work, and play in the real world. Yorgo began his career as an architect working on projects from airports to high-rises and became the youngest design director at Hellman Jones' office in Chicago. In 2002, he established the award-winning London studio, Licoria, which he ran for 12 years as a multidisciplinary practice. Yorgo's broad spectrum of practice includes architecture, design, and filmmaking. He is recognized for his work in automotive interiors for Ferrari and various works for Vitra, Alipi, and Dornbrecht. Ringlight's recent design partnerships include collaborations with Osteo, Arcadia, Techno, Scavolini, Okamura, and Zontobo. I am very excited to share our conversation with you. Hi, Yorgo. Thank you for being here and welcome to the Red Angle Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Of course. So I always start, you know, this podcast by asking my guests the same question. Um, so could you tell us a little bit more about your, you know, design philosophy and the design principle that guides you when you're doing design? Yeah. Um, so really, ultimately, design is for people. And that's the, the basis of it. And I think that's probably the same for any designer you talk to. Um, or at least it should be. <laughs> the, the thing that creates a departure point is where, where you take it from there and you know, how you answer that question of design for people because that is the differentiator. And for me, if we are building something today or making something today, I think it has to belong to our times. It has to represent us, who we are now, the best of who we are now. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, that is the challenge. That is the, you know, I think part of the interpretation of, of the times. And, and for me, design should reflect the times and should be something that is moving forward, but also carrying with it a sense of humanity. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, if we, we, if we think about this idea of something being timeless, uh, what does that mean? Well, timeless actually means something that is um, beautiful and relevant now as well as a thousand years ago as well as a thousand years in the future and i think there are some basic principles that uh, will determine that and i think well for me it's clarity it's the idea of clarity it's something that i refer to as the basis of design which means that it's something that you know has identity it has clarity it's complete in and of itself, you cannot change anything, you can't take anything away, you can't add to it. It's succinct, it's like Shakespeare, uh, what he can say in three words. Um, mm. and, and this is what I aspire to when I, whenever I do any, anything uh, in design. And how do you define, can you expand on what you just said about clarity a little more? Yeah. So. I suppose I could refer to it in different iconic objects. So if you take Coco Chanel's little black dress, once you've seen it, you can't unsee it, right? Mm -hmm. It's, you know, we refer to it as a classic. Um, It captured a moment beautifully. It it had elegance, it had grace. Um, And another example, of course, is the Barcelona chair, 
same thing. It has this clarity and, and purpose. And you can argue about the ergonomics. It's not the most comfortable chair, but it's brilliant in, in, in terms of what it's doing or similar to the Le Corbusier chairs. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, yeah, it's not just Le Corbusier. Charlotte Perrion as well, um, in collaboration. And other examples are the Porsche 911, which mm-hmm. despite it being you know, a 60-year-old more, actually, model is still relevant in its shape. They, they didn't really tamper with the shape too much, thank goodness. Um, <laughs> so the details might have changed. And so that's what I mean by clarity. In fact, maybe the Porsche is a great example because it's a living object, and, and whereas the others are more kind of uh, marked in time. And so the way that that object keeps getting reinterpreted and made modern or more relevant for the times because of technology, materials, and, and other and technology is not just materials, it's also technology in terms of aerodynamics and how that informs the design of the car. So, so that to me is, is what represents clarity. And so uh, when I design, I, I tend to design in my mind first before I start sketching. So um, it is kind of a thing that sort of appears. <laughs> sometimes complete, sometimes it's a fragment and then I have to find the rest. Um, but it is that sort of icon of, of something, an image of something that I, I would then pursue. Um, and then of course comes the hard work of making it real. Um, but, but it is that, that icon that starts things off. And I think that when something has poignancy and clarity, it is, going to impact other people probably in the same way that it impacts the person creating it. Uh, and ultimately, that's the only judge you really have. I mean, yes, you can show something to to, to people and, and see what they think, uh, get some validation, but ultimately you need to know yourself. If it excites you on some level, um, you're human, it will affect other people, I think, in a similar way. So that's, that, that's part of clarity. Part of clarity is not just simple. I don't mean just to make a box or a circle. It's not just reducing form. It's not minimalist. Um, because, you know, Antonio Gaudí's Sagrada Familia Cathedral in Barcelona, I think is another example of clarity, even though it's very complex. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and so, yeah, clarity, I think, embodies many different things, very, many different forms and ideas. Um, but it is about the impact, the emotional impact that it provides. And I think design, first and foremost, and, and any kind of design that we're talking about, whether it's cars, furniture, lighting, spaces, architecture, airplanes, um, ultimately it's for us. We do it for us. And it should belong in the world in a way that we can appreciate it and it belongs to us and in, 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 in our experience of it, that it gives something to us. Um, and so that kind of clarity of, of emotional intent or emotional impact is, is part of that thing that I'm seeking whenever I design anything. When you mention the word clarity, based on what you just said to me, it made me feel like not only the object itself has clarity, I feel like the creator also, when you create it, you have a sense of clarity. Oh, this is it. It's not about, you, <laughs> yeah, know, you're right. you do a bunch of marketing research and then you do something, what they think, which is a lot of time I feel like nowadays, you know, marketing, startup, we do a lot of research when they design product, but what you said is, I feel like it's so much harder. What do you think that takes for someone to create something that has clarity? I mean, that's an amazing question. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying I have it. I'm not a, I'm not a monk, you know. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's, it's hard. I mean, it, every day is a new day. And, and I think that when you decide you're going to start working on something, I think you need to be ready for it. And very often I delay starting until I'm ready to start. I, mm-hmm. I can feel it. It's not ready yet. I can feel it. It's, you, you get to know yourself and you start to say, today's not the day. I'm going to think about it a little bit more. I'm not going to start drawing it yet. Mm-hmm. And when you hold back a little bit, when you do sit down to start drawing something, it's, it comes out emerged, fully emerged and, and quicker. And it's, it's that moment. And you nailed something really important. It's performance. I mean, I think design is performance. It's, um, 
it's an action, but you have to kind of be at your best in that moment in order to do it well. Um, granted, we're often up against deadlines and we're stressed. And that's what we have to manage in our lives yeah. as designers. We have to manage the stress and the pressure and be able to cope with it. Uh, stay graceful, you know. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and really it's just about cultivating your humanity and developing as a person and um, choosing your influences, you know, yes. what things you want to take into your consciousness. Um, and, and that relates to the sort of template of your being um, and how you choose certain things in the world, whether it's music, art, food, places, people, you choose those things that you want that can connect to that template of you, which then inform what you're going to give back to the world. Um, I think it's that kind of process. So how did you form this view of how you see design, you know, your design philosophy? You know, the, the university I went to study architecture, in fact, um, we had an amazing dean, his name is uh, Dr. Essie Banyasad, and he started this new program uh, in architecture. And the first thing we had to design was a hut, a one-room building. And I remember how hard it was. And I remember him saying that it's hard for you and it's even harder for a seasoned architect. <laughs> and, and it's a true thing because that kind of simplicity, it's similar to what Mies van der Rohe said that, designing a chair is almost as hard as designing a skyscraper. And um, I've worked on both typologies and I, and I think that's true. Uh, it, it's true for a lot of different reasons. But um, so when you, when you think about, um, you know, your life and, and as you grow, I mean, I think being a designer, it's, it's not a job. Uh, you know, if anybody's doing it for a job, then, uh, chances are they're not going to reach a level of fulfillment that's possible. And when you do it, you know, you can't shut, shut off your designer mind. You cannot shut off your designer sensibility. It's one of those things. It's, it's a bit of a curse in a way. You, you mm -hmm. cannot, you know, it makes you um, very sensitive about everything around you, you know, objects, the arrangement of a room, the colors, uh, you know, and, and it takes a lot more to make you happy, you know, in a sense, you know, it's, it's this kind of problem. Um, so then where do you find that experience when you can't get it? Well, very often it's nature. Uh, very often it's uh, those sort of central experiences that nature gives you, like walking on a shoreline and at a certain time of day uh, where the light is a certain way and, and you get that, that magical um, confluence of different, forces and, and, and senses that are all joined up and in harmony somehow, and you get this complete experience. Um, so, you know, where did I come up with that? It's, it's really just asking myself every day, what am I doing? Or, or not even asking myself. I mean, I think at some point you have to stop asking yourself what you're doing and just do it. But nonetheless, you, you do question things and you know, especially when you fail, you, you question how you're doing things and you question what's behind it. And you have to return to your, the core of your values. That's the key for me. I, th I, think, I think a designer needs to have values, which, um, you know, not for the sake of an elevator speech and gaining a client. Um, that's the business. The art of it is who you are as a person and what you've cultivated through your life, um, through your work. And, and a lot of that comes also just from having the discipline to, to work with integrity. And, and by that, what I mean is a designer needs to have their own point of view. And, and, and this is where, you know, this gets kind of into another big topic, which is trends, but I'll, I'll stop mm -hmm. there to answer that question you just asked. No, no, it's totally okay. Um, so what is your thoughts on designers who, you know, doesn't have their own point of view and rely heavily on trends? You, you know, the interesting thing is this, when you, when you look at trends, okay, if you take um, modernism or minimalism, which started with Mies van der Rohe saying less is more, or Coco Chanel, saying less is more. I'm not sure who said it first. I think it could have been Coco Chanel. 
series out, although Miss Pandra is credited for it. But they could have equally said it, less is more. And out of that came the idea of minimalism. Now, that wasn't Mies van der Rohe. He didn't say, I'm a minimalist. I don't think he ever did anyway. Um, but it became a style. It became, yeah. Um, you know, yeah, about reduction and, and so on. What was lost in the process is that original drive, which I think is poetry. It's a kind of thing where, you know, if you see an art installation, it's maybe the best example of this, where... Or, or a Japanese garden where th things are placed in a certain way harmoniously and it just stops you, stops you thinking, you're just feeling what's around you. That's, that's what I'm referring to. And I think that the designer needs to return to that original source of emotion or source of impulse, that original impulse to do something which is coming from them as opposed to applying an external style to something. Yeah. Um, you know, again, to quote another great, Luc Corbusier, he said, uh, style is a lie. And, and what, I, what I think he means by that is that it's not coming from the person, it's just applied to something. And, uh, you know, for better or worse, we're, we're in a world that I think tries to filter things and package things into certain categories and baskets. And we say, this is this style and this is that, and this is this movement, which, um, you know, I think it's not entirely helpful um, because it ignores the, the basis of design of, is it good or not? Mm -hmm. <laughs> doesn't matter yes. what style we're going to put it in, um, you know, sifting through those sands to, to, to put things in, in order, I think it's not really that relevant for me at least. Um, but, you know, because I, I think I could um, design something in a minimalist way as well as a, a very kind of curvaceous, sensual way. And it could still belong to this idea of clarity if it's coming from, you know, that impulse in me that I, that I want to uh, express, mm -hmm. you know. Yes, definitely. And I know we talked a lot about, you know, your design philosophy now, but looking back, did it ever change things your school years? A, a lot. It's changed a lot. So when I, when I was in university, I was uh, following the masters, right? And mm -hmm. um, I believed that, you know, I had to follow in that way to have a manifesto and a dogma and a recognizable style or style that word again, mm -hmm. but something that belongs to me. Um, and in a way it makes you a bit possessive when, if somebody kind of borrows that from you and, uh, <laughs> and, and it creates a kind of psychological stress, you know, and um, over time, what I realized is that that, external expression is not what defines me as a designer it's the result which could have any form shape expression that i choose to have i took a few years to to explore filmmaking out of that experience coming back to design is that actually it's the narrative which is more important than the author so you have to give it freedom to become what it wants to become and that allowed me to then you know, kind of be liberated from this idea of a personal template that I have to put on everything. And, um, you know, and, and, and granted, there are certain architects who employ that sort of methodology where every building you see, it's, you know, who it is. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's fine, but I, I, don't, I don't work that way. I, I, for me, I think it's more interesting and exciting to kind of not know what I'm going to do <laughs> when I'm going to do it. Um, and as you say, you change, your, your perspective on things changes, uh, you grow and, uh, you know, if you're really a child of the times, you will keep adapting to and moving along with the times. You know, some, some of my favorite music, uh, musicians evolved with the times and the ones who are my least favorite kind of stayed where they were from the 60s, right? And so that's what I try to do. I, I try to keep moving, keep going forward, because I, I do believe that we have an obligation as people to keep improving ourselves and as designers to keep getting better with every project 
and you know i i really strive that my next project will be better than my last you know with every with every step with every day just always improving mm -hmm. all the time yes i think that sense of keep evolving rather than doing the same thing to some degree that is a risk so do you think designers should always take risk and push themselves so I think you're, you're touching on something much deeper, though. When you talk about taking risk, I think that we're a society that doesn't like to take risk. Every, you hear this uh, term, mitigating risk, whether it's in investment, whether it's in um, building something, uh, whether it's in designing something. Hence, we have a proliferation of project managers because you kind of trust the designers to not take risks, I suppose. <laughs> You know, it is just a, a symptom of our times that we're trying to control things uh, so that risk is mitigated, which is fair enough. Uh, mm -hmm. You'd have to be a bit insane to say that that's not important. But I do believe that you could be bold and succeed doing it. You know, some of the wonders that humanity has created over the past thousands of years, the temples and the, the pyramids and, and the, you know, the, the, the amazing work of art uh, that was sculpted in stone all through time in every culture from the Aztecs, the Romans, the Greeks, to the Phoenicians, to the, to the Indians, to the Chinese, to the Japanese, you know, every culture was, in, was embedded in this activity of creating art. Mm -hmm. I think art is an essential part of being human and by association, so is design. And when it's that important, we should not put uh, a blanket around it to try to make it risk-free. I think that it's, it's really anything that involves a great accomplishment has an element of risk in it. And, and so part of that risk-taking, you, you see it also in the way that clients will approach a brief. They'll, they'll see something is successful and they'll try to replicate it in their own business model, whether it's mm -hmm. a a new cafe, right? A new cafe chain, say. We want it to be like Starbucks meets whatever. Movies, right? Whatever was successful last year, they're going to try to replicate it. And you're going to see on the, back of it, on the back of the Matrix, for example, came all these movies that were effectively following in those footsteps because it was successful. Superhero movies. Wow, big hit, boom. Suddenly a string of superhero movies. And so on. Um, and, and, and so, you know, that, that, is, that is part of our society. It's, 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 it's actually not, a, there's not a lot of courage in that to just mm -hmm. replicate uh, a past su success. Um, and again, it probably sounds crazy for me to say that that's not a valid approach to things because certainly it is valid because it makes money. However, um, is that all we're doing? Is it, you know, if we're just making money, is, is that all we're doing? Aren't we also trying to better ourselves? Aren't we trying to serve humanity and society um, through the work that we do and to, to ennoble humanity through the work that we do, whether it's writing a book, making a movie, making a piece of furniture, a piece of architecture. Um, I think we have so much potential that is getting thwarted and lost by this kind of fearful thinking. Um, so, you know, I hope, I hope that the appetite for risk isn't, uh, isn't uh, lost. I think that as a, as a society, we tend to be very individualistic and insular, and we're most concerned about our own lives. And, uh, and, and again, you might say that, well, that's just natural, that's just human to be individualistic, but I'm not sure it is. And I think that it's a uh, as individuals, we should always realize that the work we do um, will have an impact on a lot of other people. You know, so when we talk about being a designer, you will literally steal moments of a person's life with the presence of your spaces or your objects that you create. Um, that becomes the experience of whether we're playing God. You know, we're creating the environment. Uh, it's not forests and oceans and mountains, but we're creating spaces that we're living in. And that's a big responsibility. Um, so, so for me, risk is, is an irrelevant 
concept actually is kind of the aspiration should be first it's not a question of okay so you want to do this but it's risky the question is so you want to do this it's worth doing how do we do it right um turning it on the positive which is not why shouldn't we do it or why is it dangerous or risky but how do we do it and how do we make it a success and that's a very simple shift of thinking it's not a dramatic shift it's just flipping it to the other side so that's where great ideas will be realized by being willing to take risks not just as individual designers but uh, i'm speaking about our clients as well um, and and it's hard i know it's hard for you know everybody has a different um set of of constraints and aspirations and you know if you're a, if you're a, a company who's building furniture your aspiration is to make money and most of the time we're making little steps forward little steps forward not big steps it's, it's always little tiny steps all you have to do is go to um five years five consecutive years of trade shows anybody you talk to who has been to neocon or milan or wherever always comes back and says well there wasn't really anything new <laughs> yeah and and it, it just it just tells me that well we're not trying hard enough if there's nothing new you you know over all those years um we're we're just not trying hard enough and it doesn't mean that we have to be new just for the sake of being new but right. if we are creative spirits nothing will stop us from creating new things we'll be doing new things all the time mm -hmm. so um yeah every day is a risk so i think we should embrace that yeah yeah i love that and so you know how do you apply your design philosophy and this sense of risk taking to an actual design project um so what's your design process like yeah well um it depends on what it is um so let's say it's a building my my thought is first of all the place um and and there's a certain romance about that you know if it's in new york city or if it's in um qatar or if it's in london or in paris um immediately you you are in a culture right so the culture is important um and then the specifics of the project come to life so i spend a lot of time thinking about all the different elements of the project before i i start to put you know the pencil down um but while that's happening i could feel sort of ideas starting to churn images start to appear is it going to be hard or soft transparent solid is it clear is it mysterious is it what is it doing what what is it doing is it playing with its neighbors or being distinct you know all these kind of uh questions start to come up very early on and I think that's a very different approach from from uh an architect or designer who would want to take a certain form they have in their mind or a certain shape and say I want to put this here, you know. Um yeah, that's that's a very different approach. And I'm not saying that that's wrong, I'm just saying it's a different approach. Um and so the same for designing furniture, lighting. Um you well I start with the idea of why am I doing another one of these familiar objects that mm -hmm. there are already so many of them um what can i do this time that will make it any different um so so again not looking at pinterest because that's just re repeating what's there with instagram with um it's about going into yourself and finding some new expressions and new thoughts and and maybe there's an aspiration that you have maybe it's a sustainable aspiration so you might start with the material so every every project has a key which sort of unlocks the door and and sets so starting point so it it could be that you want to explore a material um because it's a wondrous material and if 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 you are exploring a material then um the best way to go about it is to push the material to make it work hard in other words if it's going to be steel make it work hard and make it do things that only steel can do or if it's carbon fiber you know make it do things that only it can do 
and that's kind of a, a pure expression of the material. So, um, so that's so the design process actually for me is different for every project in a way. Um, I spend the first part of my thinking designing the process. Uh, I'll give you an example when I was designing a door handle series for a company called FSB from Germany. Um, at that time, and this is quite a long time ago, 20 years ago, I was thinking that I was probably something like a minimalist, you know, in some fashion. Um, but yet the most minimal door handle had already been designed, which is the Bentu. <laughs> That's it. Right? It's a Bentu. It's tube. There it is. Okay, done. So obviously I'm not going to do any better than that. You can make it square. You can make it uptown. It doesn't really change anything. That's just a cosmetic thing. Um, it's a derivation. So I thought, how am I going to, how am I going to do this? And what I decided to do was, was start with the hand and the idea of, you know, what, what does the hand do when it gra grips something? So I took a piece of clay and, you know, made it soft and then squeezed it and then looked at the form and then started sculpting around that form and then did it in a, in a high density foam that they use in Formula One cars at that time anyway. So it's really kind of uh, crystalline, but very fine structure. So you get really smooth, beautiful surfaces. So I did, I don't know how many, just countless objects. And, and I kept checking the form and this one's better and this one's better. And until I got to the point where um, it was ready to do it in a, in a harder material, which is a sort of modeling, uh, modeling wood. Um, and then from there, finally digitizing it and they cut the mold the, they cut the tooling from the thing that i sculpted which is incredible you know this, this idea of making something by hand which suddenly becomes yeah. an industrial project product right i didn't do a single drawing i didn't do a single drawing i did the whole thing with a sense of touch and that was a that was a bit of a surprise i've surprised myself in a way because i had never worked that way before but it just felt like that would be the only way that I would be able to do anything new was to change the way I work. Um, because most designers would pick up a pencil and start drawing shapes, right. right? Until you find one you like. So, and I remember sitting in Notting Hill on my rooftop and, and spending, you know, days and days sculpting all these forms. Um, until it was ready. And uh, that was an extraordinary project for me. And, and, and that was, you know, there are certain projects kind of marking my process and changing the way I think about doing work um, that then come into the thinking of the next process, sort of liberating in a way, you know, um, because you don't always have to pick up a pencil, actually. You know, you, 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 actually, you actually don't. And, and a lot of the work happens in your mind anyway. So sometimes you have this image of a kind of perfect form or something that you, and then you try to draw it. And especially if you have to do it in CAD and in 3D, um, it's, it's challenging, right? And that's, yeah. that's really where reality meets the ideal. And you have to work hard to get that, get that balance, you know, and to get it uh, to that place of, you know, so-called perfection that's in your mind. Yeah. You know, I find it very interesting that in this specific project, you only used hand modeling and sculpting during the process. And, you know, that for you is a new way of design. But if we think about it, like, say, going way back, that is actually how human used to make art and object to begin with. And because now we are so used to, you know, making drawings, CAD or 3D modeling in the design process, I feel like the original way of using hand now feels like new for us. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um, yeah. And it, it's still part of us, isn't it? You know, I, yeah. I don't think we have to necessarily, just because we have new tools, it doesn't mean we have to use them. I think we just have to use the right tools. And, and it's, sometimes it is a pencil, you know, it's, mm -hmm. sometimes it is, it's, it's, you know, it just depends. And so, yeah, and sometimes it's a watercolor brush and you just have to choose the right tool for the, for the moment, for the job, for, 
the thing that's going to help you get to the best expression. And, and that comes back to this idea that, you know, to being a designer is not just a job. It's, uh, it's a kind of, uh, it, it's, there's a very personal aspect to it, um, which then, you know, part of, part of the challenge then is how do you make a personal, a very personal act uh, collaborative? How do you collaborate with other people on, on something which is so personal? Um, and, and that becomes interesting because whenever you're doing something in collaboration with other people, then it becomes, then it's not yours anymore and you have to let it go. And everybody on the team, the, the only way that a team can collaborate is by everyone letting go ownership of it and treating that thing that is created as, again, another character or another entity you know that 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 doesn't belong to anyone and when you have that kind of spirit as a team you can do really great things together you know so um collaboration is is an art as well working alone is an art as well i mean and i think depending on what you're doing uh sometimes you do things alone sometimes you do it in a team and you have to be able to adapt to those situations um but i i, I think it is challenging sometimes for uh, certain des designers to to come together. It takes a lot of confidence as well as a designer to work in a team because um, confidence in yourself, but also confidence in your team, uh, where you can can um, release control to to the the wider group and and let influences come from everywhere. And and you know when you do that, the decisions of whether something is good or not is not based on who came up with it. It's based on, is it good or not? Yeah. And everybody in the team can immediately decide and see if it's the right thing or not when you're on the same wavelength. Um, because I think sometimes when, you, when there's collaboration, it becomes like a, like a children's birthday party. Everybody has to get a prize. <laughs> you <know what> I mean? <laughs> and, and you have to sort of uh, make sure that everyone gets a piece of it. And, um, you know, what, what I what I try to do in a collaborative uh, situation, you know, as the creative director, I, I have to guide the process. But what I, what I do is I make sure that all the voices are heard and have an influence. So even if it isn't the final line that's drawn, uh, didn't belong to a certain person, the influence for that decision might've come from something someone said. So the presence of people you know, in the room um, is important. And, um, you know, this is where, um, you know, there has to be a kind of, a, I, I mean, I'm saying this and I think next time I kind of start a collaborative project, maybe state the rules, right? That the rules are that every point is valid and don't, uh, don't feel bad if your idea gets smashed because it's not about you. It's about the good of the product mm -hmm. or the result. And, and I think that's a healthy attitude towards collaboration. Yeah, I agree. And you know, since we're on the topic of design process, nowadays using online inspiration is very popular among designers. So what's your thoughts on that regard? You know, when I was starting out, we didn't have a resource like the yeah. internet. What's happening now is that, and this is true of all of us, we're all under pressure to perform. When a mm -hmm. client asks for something, we have a deadline. Um, if you don't trust yourself to come up with a good idea, you're going to go on the internet, you're going to find references, create what we call mood boards and mm -hmm. um, references. And, and you, you basically show the client in advance what it's going to look like before you do the work. Um, effectively, you don't trust the client to, to let you work and you don't trust yourself to come up with great ideas. So you try to uh, mitigate that risk by saying it's going to be kind of here in this basket of ideas. But what's happening in our time is, is at such a kind of industrial scale that it's becoming the way we work. When people are resorting to looking for inspiration online, they're foregoing the opportunity to be creative um, to some extent. I mean, granted, yes, you could take an idea and sort of develop it, or you could mix ideas together, 
and that's all cool and it creates a great result and and, and maybe they're right maybe that's what our time is our time is re recycling old ideas but i think that's just pure decadence in the sense of decaying so i'm resisting that and, mm -hmm. I, and i think that we're capable of coming up with ideas that represent our times which are new and we need to keep trying mm -hmm. Definitely. I honestly hope more designers can try or clients can give designers the opportunity to work that way. Yeah. And, you know, I want to bring a conversation to your career. I know you've done architecture, interior design, industrial design, as well as film. Yeah. So how did you land yourself on all those different creative fields? Um, so I so in the very beginning, I wanted to be a car designer and uh, I started studying mechanical engineering because that's what I was told I had to do and then realized that I didn't want to study mechanical engineering. Um, it's not that into physics, although I, in, a, in a way I love physics in, in, in kind of as the idea and the theoretical aspect of it, but when it came to you know, calculating the, the, the fall of an object and things, I mean, and the, that complexity and reducing it to formulas, I thought, mm, this isn't quite what I want to be doing with my life. Anyway, I changed direction and went into architecture. Um, and, and the thing that attracted me to that was the, the element of people, which, you know, which is all about we're creating for people. Just a little side note on that. You know, very often we talk about the client. We talk about serving the client and doing what the client wants. And, I, and, and that's correct. But there are two clients, or, or in fact, a multitude of clients, because once the building is built, it belongs to the city. It belongs to everybody who uses it. So in a way, we're serving humanity at large, um, not just the client. And, uh, you know, the, the idea of architecture or design as a service is, is a fair one, but um, we have to always remember that we're serving society at large. So anyway, okay, just a little aside on that. No, that's a really good point. I'm glad you yeah. mentioned that. Yeah. And then so in, in terms of uh, architecture, so I, I started uh, working as, a, as an architect and uh, uh, but even before that, like even in university, I, would, I, I was interested in detail, I was interested in making things, I was interested in, in furniture and I was interested in, in the whole kind of phenomenon of the built experience, the designed experience and everything in it. Um, so when I started working as an architect, I, I found myself designing everything including the lighting and the you know the objects within the space the furniture and then it became quite a serious thing when uh, i had a chance to design uh, the airport at Bon, and i designed you know the check-in counters which are pretty uh, pretty extraordinary because what i wanted to do is to basically humanize and kind of create a bridge between the human world and the machine world and create this object which embodies both and they sort of lean towards you and uh, they're made of stainless steel, but curved forms that uh, respond to the way an airplane is built. Um, so I was working for, for Helmut Jan, and, uh, you know, which was a great experience. He gave me freedom to effectively come up with my own ideas and uh, working very hard to, to come up with new ideas um, in that context of, of you know, brilliant architects who supported you. Uh, we did some really great things and, and also designed the lighting for that airport and uh, the restaurants and the bars and everything was bespoke. Uh, and then ultimately designed the chairs because I was thinking, why should we, this, why should we use the Eames, uh, the Eames Air Terminal seating again? You know, is there something else, right? And they're brilliant, you know, they are brilliant, they're great, you know, this kind of so world-class, <laughs> it's hard to improve them, but at that time, I was thinking, you know, I don't want to just use these chairs again. So I designed uh, something which, uh, for me, um, I, wanted, I wanted it to embody that moment where the plane lifts off the ground. So, you know, the whole structural element of it was, was really important. And, and then, of course, the way it's managed. So that was my first foray into product design, actually doing something on an industrial scale. Mm -hmm. And that just opened the Pandora's box to me of, of industrial design. And from there, I just started designing everything I could in relation to the, the project I would be working on. Um, and then it became a serious practice. So I, uh, when I left Chicago, I, I came to um, London, so that was 20 years ago. 
-hmm. and uh, started a, a practice here, which was um, interior architecture, architecture, and product design. And uh, but you know mostly product design. And then um, out of that, I, I started getting interested in film. And maybe I got a bit sidetracked. If you want to know the truth, from my you know career um, as a designer. Uh, but it was something that I really wanted to do to get it sort of out of my system. I couldn't deny it. Like I couldn't stop myself anymore. Like I, it was such a strong impulse and I just had to do it. So I, I started uh, studying, um, you know, film direction and, and script writing, screenwriting, and, uh, you know, did courses and read loads of books and then studied editing and then, you know, made a, made a film. The first film I made was, uh, uh, with a chair that I designed for my thesis, you know, wrote a kind of uh, screen, you know, script for it or a kind of uh, narrative, which then I, I worked with a principal dancer called Bridget Briner, who's from, uh, who's, who was at the Stuka Ballet at the time, a principal there. And uh, she was brilliant and she, she choreographed this piece around this chair. And then we shot it and I edited it and so on. And it was one of the most wondrous experiences I ever had. And, and then I started writing uh, screenplays, did a feature film screenplay, wrote 10 short films based on Shakespeare. I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to capture the plays of Shakespeare in a 20 minute piece or 15 minute piece. I remember walking through Shoreditch in London with a friend and saying, you know, I think it's terrible that young people aren't, aren't interested in Shakespeare or exposed to it. And, you know, the kind of what I was calling the Twitter generation that, you know, is reducing everything to a few characters and, 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 and missing out on this really important aspect of storytelling, which, you know, stories are important for humanity. Um, you know, in every single culture in the world, going back thousands of years to, to China, to Greece, to every, every culture, they, they wrote stories. And it's a way for a person to experience a form of life that they don't have and they learn from it, right? Uh, but in order for them to learn from it, they have to feel the emotions of it. So what most students do is they just look at uh, the cliff notes, right? And they pass the tests, but they don't really read the plays so they don't get to the experience of the story. So that was really troubling me. And I thought, I, I want to do this. I want to, create, I want to create a package of 10 short films based on Shakespeare, shoot them all in London, um, and uh, and uh, distribute them online for you know for for the benefit of young people to feel the pathos, the pain, the joy, whatever it is in these stories in a very short burst while they're on a commute or something. And, and uh, so this became kind of a mission. So I you know I delved into each uh, each of those plays and, and read it several times, took curious notes extracted the structure from it and the themes and then <laughs> rewrote it as a short film in, in modern day London. Anyway, it was a complete fa failure because <laughs> I was only able to pull up one, which was uh, Verona based on Romeo and Juliet. Um, again, a great experience. I, I wrote them all, but I only could shoot one because it's expensive. It's expensive to do films and it takes a lot of time. And at some point I had to get back to my, my real work, you know, and, uh, so that was, um, nonetheless, something that had a big influence. So when I came back to architecture and design, I was kind of refreshed. It was a bit of a rebirth. I was a completely new person as a result of that. And um, it gave me a whole new point of view on what it means to be a designer and also how to collaborate with people. Because film is pure collaboration. There's so much compromise in film. And um, so out of that came this, uh, you know, kind of, new attitude towards design and, and again you identified it as risk taking so i became comfortable with the idea of risk and and really putting the story first the narrative first the identity of the project first um and succeeding in pulling it off with a client i mean that's the key it's it's not just taking risks and being wild and uh, um crashing out you have to still pull it off you know that's part of the part of the trick. So you, you have an obligation to your client always. So it can't be so risk taking that things don't work. You have to still deliver. 
Um, so, so that's where I ended up now. And then, um, you know, we created Rainlight. And Rainlight is all about, it's this idea of opposites coming together. It's the idea of, uh, for example, business and culture coming together. Because that's what product design is. There's always a strong element of business and a strong element of culture if you do it well. And so Rainlight, again, two kind of opposites that create something kind of quite beautiful. If you ever saw, you know, the sun coming through falling rain, it's a rare thing. Um, and it's that magic of, of these two rare elements coming together that make it wondrous. And so that's what Rainlight is all about. And so it, with every project, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to create, uh, uh, you know, uh, a business success as much as a cultural success with everything that we do. Um, so it's been, it's been an incredible experience. I have a great team. Uh, we work really well together. We have a lot of fun doing it. More, most importantly, we, we really have fun, <laughs> actually. Uh, we work hard, too. And, and we've had great clients who um, have been an absolute joy to work with as well. You mm -hmm. know, um, they've given us so much support in, in, in pursuing our ambitions and, uh, and working with us to, to achieve uh, what I think is a growing body of work, which uh, we're all proud of. So that's amazing, and you know I can't wait to see what's next for Rainlight. And in the end of each episode, I always ask my guests five quick fire questions. Mm -hmm. So the first one is, what's your favorite book? Ooh, um, I think though. Well, one well one of my favorite books is Underworld by Don DeLillo. Just such a magnificent. That's like, um, I mean, really a master. And and when he wrote that, um, he was really you know we talked about this idea of being in the right state of mind to do design. I mean, I think this was a situation where he he, he reached this point in his life where he where he had really you know, peaked and, and created this masterwork. It's this, um, it's a kind of postmodern structure, I suppose, as a novel, but it's, um, it's just one beautiful moment after another, and it goes on and on and on. And it's almost exhausting because you just think, God, it's so beautiful. And it's just like, oh my God, there it goes. And it just keeps going. And, and it really is a masterwork. And I have to read it again. So that was really quite mind-blowing. Um, there's, there's a writer who I, uh, Carlos Ruiz Zafon, and uh, he wrote a series of books. The first one was called The Shadow of the Wind. And really quite wondrous tales. Uh, they take place in Barcelona, and it's, uh, there's this labyrinth of books, and it's, I don't know what it all means. Um, and people have wanted to make movies from his books, and he refused to give permission. Uh, I don't know why. Um, maybe, maybe it would ruin them. You know, maybe it's something that should never be a movie. But um, all those books are really quite, run like I say, wondrous tales. You sort of get lost in them. There's this kind of uh, world that they create. So those are brilliant. Yeah. So the second one is, do you have a favorite designer or a brand? Luigi Colani. Um, was was really quite a brilliant creative force, um, quite an outlier. I mean, he was doing things really his own way, and had some really, um, you know, was quite ahead of his time, I would say, and very daring. I mean, daring to an extreme. Like he didn't care about what anybody thought. <laughs> um, nonetheless, created such beautiful, beautiful things. Um, I love Antonio Gaudi as, a, as an architect because while his work looks kind of frivolous and crazy, it has a really strong sculpture, sculptural underpinning. Um, you know, it's all based on, on this kind of logic of, of structure that uh, almost looks like it's defying gravity. Um, so there's this been amazing things. Um, who are your favorite artists? I, be, I remember just being really moved by Bill Viola, the video artist, being really moved by um, these, uh, I can't remember what they're called, uh, they'll come to me in a minute, but it was at the National Gallery, these giant screens of, of people falling into water in slow motion and, and 
things like that. And um, you know, in the way that you get mesmerized if you're looking at a campfire, mm-hmm. and you just and then you you stop thinking, you just you just get lost, and then something that happens had that sort of quality because it's changing so slowly. Um, so it's like watch, looking at a painting, but the painting is slowly changing, which means that your mind is constantly reacting to the image as it's changing very, very slowly. So I, th- I thought that was quite brilliant. Uh, such a simple concept in a way, but something that had a really powerful effect. And, and it was video and it was, you know, it cannot exist in a book. So you had to be there, you know, it's a live experience in a way. And all of that put together made it really quite powerful. You know, I'm often very critical when I go to art galleries and I probably embarrassed my wife once when I, I, I kind of left the gallery. I said, this is just out of nonsense. I said, you know, this is not art. And I stormed out <laughs> and, you know, I was quite upset actually, because it was at the Tate and I just thought, you know, they're, 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 pulling our leg here you know this is um um you know i think sometimes people try to be uh outrageous and i don't find it outrageous i find it insulting i think that an artist should manifest something that has real human value and not just try to be uh someone who's going to be written about uh in you know for being outrageous i think you know the true the true legends like the the you know the the picassos and, and and the dalis who really broke new ground were not trying to be outrageous they were following an inner drive to 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 capture something of the times and you know you can see the difference between between the the special effects of trying to be new and something that really has uh depth and integrity so I'm quite sensitive to those things, you know, when I see it. <laughs> What's the most fun place you've been before? Wow. I, you know, it dep- a lot of it depends on time of life too, right? Mm-hmm. But Barcelona, Barcelona, I lived in Barcelona for almost a year and that was a, a wondrous fun place because uh, it was so free and, and so full of life and joy and, and, uh, uh, you know, when I was there, I was in contact with people from all over the world and, and the design scene was really thriving and fresh. Um, it was just filled with possibilities. Um, so, so Barcelona, I think for me, is uh, probably still that mark of the most fun place I've ever been. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So last question, how do you decompress? I take long walks. Um, you know, I, I, I like to keep exercising you know so I exercise I do different things um, I, I love swimming actually this year I started uh, uh, winter swimming which is basically going out into uh, open water and, no way. and diving yeah and, and the coldest temperature was like six degrees celsius which for water temperature is is pretty icy you can only stay in for a few minutes um, and uh, it's the most crazy, exhilarating thing. It's such a shock to the system. It's supposed to be really good for you, um, but it is. It takes a lot of kind of mental strength to just jump in because you don't have to do it. You know? No, you really don't. <laughs> and you go in and say, "Why am I here?" That was really uh, a quite a. As my wife got me into that, she's she's always done it, and uh, you know, she kind of dared me one way. Said, "Are you?" Are you man enough to do this? I said, all right, let's go. Come on. Oh, my God. (laughs) And, and of course, you know, I love movies and and I love reading and uh, doing all these things. Just being with family. And I always look forward to sort of Friday night to just say, okay, it was a week and recap and, uh, and just wind down a little bit. I love that. Well, I really enjoy our conversation. I definitely learn a lot and then it makes me think a lot about what I want to do in my, you know, design career in the future. So thank you so much for, you know, oh, drawing me and talk to me. I, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Anna, thank you very much for having me and your questions are brilliant. It's great talking to you and consider me a friend. If you ever want to talk, uh, just reach out and I'm there. 
Thanks for listening to the Red Angle Podcast. If you like this episode, subscribe and review us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can stay connected with us through Instagram at the Red Angle Podcast, or reach out to me personally at Elo Design. I linked everything about my guests in the show notes, so please go check it out. Thanks again for listening, and see you guys next Wednesday.